you know, if the elephant re could be as fast as a mouse, it would need an enormous circulatory system. So I sort of imagine this elephant walking around with a giant network on its back, right? Okay. <laughs> that is the thing that would pump enough oxygen to its cells so an elephant's cells could run as fast as a mouse's cells. So it's sort of this impossibility, like the network would have to be larger than the elephant itself. And so sociality is an answer to that question. You can have a network that's external to the bodies that are being maintained and have all these energetic requirements if you are much more loosely coupled. <laughs> between 100 kilograms of human being and 100 kilograms of algae? One answer to this question is the veins and arteries that carry nutrients throughout the human body, allowing for the intricate coordination needed in a complex organism. Energy requirements determine how the evolutionary process settles on the body plans appropriate to an environment. One way to tell the story of life's major innovations is in terms of how a living system solves the problems of increasing body size with internal transport networks and more extensive regulation. And the same is true in our invented information systems, every bit as subject to the laws of physics as we are. Computers, just like living tissue, seek effective trade-offs between their scale and energy efficiency. A physics of metabolic scaling one that finds deep commonalities and crucial differences between ant hives and robot swarms, between the physiology of elephants and server farms, can help explain some of the biggest puzzles of the fossil record and sketch out the likely future evolution of technology. It is already revolutionizing how we understand search algorithms and the genius of eusocial organisms. And just maybe, it can help us solve the challenge of sustainability for planetary culture. Welcome to Complexity, the official podcast of the Santa Fe Institute, the world's foremost complex system science research organization. I'm your host, Michael Garfield, and each week we'll bring you with us for far-ranging conversations with our worldwide network of researchers, rigorous scientists and mathematicians, philosophers and artists developing new frameworks, tools, and theories to explain the deepest mysteries of the universe. This is a show about your world people who have dedicated their lives to exploring and explaining its emergent order, their stories, research, and insights. Join us for an adventure into complexity. This week's guest is Melanie Moses, external professor at the Santa Fe Institute, professor of computer science and biology at the University of New Mexico, and principal investigator for the NASA Swarmathon. In this episode, we talk about her highly interdisciplinary work on metabolic scaling in biology and computer information processing, and how complex systems made and born alike have found ingenious ways to balance the demands of growth and maintenance with implications for space exploration, economics, computer chip design, and more. Before we start, we'd like to inform you of upcoming opportunities with SFI. Applications are now open for the 2020 Complex Systems Summer School, 
the Graduate Workshop in Computational Social Science, the 2020 Journalism Fellowship, and a postdoctoral position in Scaling Theory. We're also raising money for our Amidyear Fellows program to give promising young scientists an opportunity to push the envelope with bold blue sky research. And every dollar you donate is matched one-to-one for twice the impact. Learn more at santafe.edu. For transcripts, show notes, research links, and more, please visit complexity.simplecast.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please help us reach a wider audience by leaving a five-star review at Apple Podcasts or by sharing the show on social media. Thank you for listening. Melanie Moses, it's a pleasure to join you in the complexity. Thanks. It's great to be here. So you have written, uh, you sent me some very interesting papers on what I think is really preliminary research to the, where you spend most of your time these days. But, but this work is so interesting and, and speaks directly to my abiding curiosity in major evolutionary transitions. So uh, I'd like to start by talking about the, the PNAS paper you co-authored on shifts in metabolic scaling. But actually, before we get into that, I'd like to know a little bit about your background as a scientist and like how you how you got into science. Excellent. Well, uh, I have, as, as many people at the Santa Fe Institute, have probably a rather meandering path to my, <laughs> to my current uh, place in science. Uh, I started uh, in, with an interest in physics, computer science, and... Um, in fact, I think probably my first introduction to science that I was excited about was reading the book Complexity, oh, which, wow. okay, yeah. Yeah, which I read on the airplane uh, to, to go to my freshman year in college. So I was sort of influenced, you know, before I chose my major, I, I had this, you know, amazing book describing this interdisciplinary center where people brought together ideas from physics and economics. And um, I was really excited by that. And so I, I majored in something called symbolic systems which is an interdisciplinary, um, it's really interdisciplinary computer science philosophy, particularly focused on philosophy of mind and philosophy of language um, as a way to really approach artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. So so that's a very different approach, just to just so I can get this clear in my head. That's, that's very different from like uh, non-symbolic AI, like machine learning, deep neural networks, it, right? Yes, yeah. this is much more traditional AI, good old-fashioned AI, right, that um, has in many circles been sort of supplanted, surpassed by these machine learning approaches. Um, the mach- we didn't learn any machine learning in my, <laughs> in my undergraduate uh, years, which, which, of course, now that's quite, quite useful. But I started in uh, this uh, studying actually agent-based modeling and robotics as an undergrad, and then moved to, um, I worked in computer security for a while and just was not excited by the work I was doing. So I spent a few months living in the rainforest in Costa Rica and decided that I, what I really wanted to study was ecology. And so, uh, so I switched entirely. In fact, I had not taken a biology class in, as an undergrad, my last biology class had been in 10th grade. So I, I, uh, I had a bit of work to do. I, you know, I went to school in the evenings and the summers and things and, and picked up some biology and then, uh, pursued a pilot, uh, biology degree at PhD at UNM university of New Mexico, right down the road from the Santa Fe Institute, which was on purpose. Uh And, um, began working on uh, scaling theory uh, as part of my biology. Um, so sort of a, a, there was nothing really computational about that original work. It was mathematical biology and theoretical mm-hmm. ecology. Um, but that's what sort of, sort of my entry into 
the world of complexity research. I may be jumping ahead of ourselves, but just pointing out, it's, it's interesting how in retrospect, it all seems to come together, you know, that all of these different disciplines are, are now so like intricately woven uh, into a single understanding in what you're doing. And it's, it's funny because when I, when I spoke to Jen Dunn, she got her start in philosophy also, that there's, there's something about the, I don't know, the, the disposition of the kind of person drawn to this vastly synthetic work, you know, the big questions, the deep ones. Right. Yeah. I think, you know, some of this, but the real key for me was that living in the rainforest was watching trails of ants, often army ants, but other leafcutter ants that, and, and having worked in network security, you know, just having this sort of idea that networks are everywhere and then you go to the rainforest, right? I was trying to escape that world, right? I was t- I didn't want to work in that world anymore. And then I go to the rainforest and it's full of these ants that are building networks and, you know, basically dominating this ecosystem by these, these um, dynamic networks that are, you know, you see them crawl. It's like the forest floor is moving with these ants everywhere. And yeah, so that, that connection was was very... You know, it was, it was sort of a deep connection that just made me feel like, oh, I, I just can't get away from these networks. I'm going to, I'm going to have to spend my life um, investigating questions about about networks. And um, I think the symbolic systems approach was just the idea that you really can draw from really different disciplines uh, to, to come to some kind of synthetic understanding. Well, I want to call the shot for this conversation because your your recent work on swarm robotics and ant foraging and uh, T cells in the immune system. Uh, there's, there's a clear link there, the, the cybersecurity and ants and, and everything. But to get to that, I think it's important. What is it? Carl Sagan says, in order to bake an apple pie from scratch, first you must create the universe, <laughs> right? So there is this, this beautiful portrait of the history of life and its major transitions that comes through in some of your earlier publications. You were just talking about the the kind of more straightforward scaling math stuff. And I, I think that this is where we see the braid, where we see life as a physical process, as an energetic process unfolding in time. So I'd love to, yeah, I'd love to dig in first on this PNAS paper that uh, DeLong and et al., piece on shifts in metabolic scaling. So could you set the stage a little bit for the the thinking about this piece, the history of scaling thought in biology? Sure. So, um, and I'm glad we're starting with this because I do think this is really the place where the implications of scaling become most readily apparent. So um, the basic concept with these, these scaling laws that were developed here at SFI by uh, Jeff West and Jim Brown, Brian Enquist. Um, I had the really great pleasure of working with them in my, on my PhD um, and a postdoc, really trying to understand these scaling laws, which sort of at their, at their heart are explaining this nonlinear relationship between metabolism and mass in plants and animals. So the, the basic uh, empirical pattern known for many decades at this point, is that the metabolic rate of an animal is proportional to its mass to the three-quarter power. And basically what that means, if you compare an elephant and a mouse, the elephant's a million times bigger, but its metabolism, uh, I'm going to forget the number, it's something like you know 10,000 times faster, not a million times larger. So bigger animals have obviously larger energetic needs, but not proportionally so. And the scaling papers that came out of SFI and really this tremendously influential 
body of theory had relied on data that suggested that this went you know, across the, the tree of life down to bacteria, um, certainly in plants and animals. And, um, but John DeLong had some data that suggested that in fact, uh, if you look at the, the smallest bacteria, even unicell, unicellular eukaryotes, you don't see the same scaling relationship. And so this started from a, a mindset that this is a universal sort of pattern. We started to suspect, wait, maybe there's something, something else going on here. What's, what I love about this work is it, it really is, in some sense, exceptions that prove a rule. So the argument, um, the explanation for this three-quarter power scaling came from the geometry and dynamics of a fractal branching network. And so there's, you know, you can look outside, there's trees all over, you see fractal branching networks with big trunks that branch into smaller branches. Um, you've got a beautiful fractal branching network in your body, right, your aorta, branching out to capillaries. But that's not true in bacteria. There's no visible fractal branching network. And so really, when we thought about this, we thought, you know, this, this constraint, this three-quarter power constraint, perhaps shouldn't hold in these other cases. And when John went back and he looked at the data that others had collected and his own data, um, it became apparent that, you know, the basic fundamental energetic constraints are different as you go across these evolutionary transitions from bacteria to um, eukaryotes, things with a nucleus, uh, to multicellular plants and animals. So one of the things that I love about this paper is how it makes clear, or it at least pr proposes how it could be the case that each of these radical reconfigurations of body plan, each, each major shift in the size of an organism over evolutionary history has been the answer to a crisis in energy distribution right. and that, you know, thinking about the, you know, I always thought about it in terms of information flow and like cohesion, mm -hmm. you know, I, like when I got into uh, complexity science, it was through the work that David Krakauer was doing with Martin Nowak at Princeton on the error catastrophe and the emergence of language and how these networks grow in response to uh, error rates as they scale. But there's this other piece, which I love in, in your work here, about how this is about physical objects and surfaces and volumes and, and how energy diffuses across membranes. And I'd love to uh, hear you say a little bit more about, about actually what you found and, and what you think is going on in these transitions. Excellent. So, so yeah, so I'll start by talking about energy. I, I too am really fascinated by the sort of scaling of these information systems and obviously they are not unrelated, right? Biological systems are energetic and information processing systems. Um, but the energy story in some sense is fairly simple, right? The, you know, that, uh, the argument here is that, um, right. We start with bacteria, um, that have a scaling that essentially suggests that it's super linear so that as the bacteria are growing, they are getting more, essentially more energetically efficient as they grow larger, right? So that's a neat trick. Um, <laughs> certainly you wanna, you wanna max that out as, right? So you, see, you can see bacteria getting larger and larger over evolutionary time. Um, and and why that, is that? Why, why is that happening? What, well, there's, so there's essentially sort of two benefits to being large. One, right, you're, you're able to consume more resources, which means you can then put those into reproduction, right? You can, right, in the case of bacteria, you can double your population size by consuming more and outcompeting potentially other species that are smaller. But you're also able to consume energy, not just, a, you know, in a total 
faster rate, but at a, a sort of per volume faster rate. So it's just, you know, things are getting better and better, faster and faster as you sort of get larger as bacteria. But there's a limit to that because all of this energy that the bacteria are using is essentially got to work. This has to happen by diffusion, right? And diffusion is a slow process as things, as volume get, gets larger, right? Diffusion becomes limiting in that it just is, is sort of the rate limiting step to move things around to a, in a large space um, eventually becomes untenable. And so it sets up uh, a place where things can no longer become more efficient by getting larger unless they switch design. And so uh, the argument in this paper is that chloroplasts and mitochondria are essentially solving the problem, solving a problem of diffusion, right? These are organelles, which are now um, changing an essential surface area to volume problem, right, that a bacteria has. So it has to, you know, everything that comes into the bacteria has to come across its membrane. And that's a surface area, right? But its volume is growing faster than its surface area. So it's got more need for stuff on the inside. Um, and the rate at which stuff can go in and out is slowing relative to that volume on the, on the inside. And so the solution is to create these membrane-bound organelles. So you basically put lots of membrane on the inside, um, which, a, which a ge right? that's a genius <laughs> answer to the, to the problem. And so it allows cells to get much bigger, but it also has a different scaling constraint. So what we found in the data is that when that transition happens, now the scaling relationship becomes linear rather than super linear. So it's a, you know, these membrane bound organelles are a solution to a problem, but they come with their own constraint. And that's kind of the main message in these evolutionary transitions is each transition is an evolutionary, almost a technological solution to a previous problem about how energy can flow. But every technology sort of has its own new set of constraints that it imposes on the organism. And so, you know, it scales up until that really hits a wall and there becomes some other process or technology that gets around that constraint in some way. So with these, these membrane-bound organelles, you still have a diffusion problem, right? You still have to get things from the outside then to these um, organelles that are internal. And so this fractal branching network is sort of the solution to that. You now have basically a branching pipe <laughs> going from, you know, where, for example, the oxygen can come from the outside into the organism and be distributed really efficiently um, to these organelles that are inside the cells. And again, that's a, that's a great solution. It allows things to get many, many orders of magnitude larger, plants and animals, but it's got its own constraints that as things get bigger and bigger, they're sort of slightly less efficient. They can't run at the same speed as, um, as smaller things. And so this is just sort of putting these transitions um, that, are, that are already known. There's sort of a, an energetic ex explanation for sort of why we see these transitions in the places that we do and the sizes that we see. I'm reminded to, to call back to my conversation with Luis Betancourt, and we were talking about slums uh -huh. and how do you fix slums? How do you get services into these places? And it was all about mapping them in, and finding uh, where to cut into these blocks where there's no infrastructure, there's no, there's no streets or, or piping or anything. And it's the same question. It's the same issue of, you know, how do we diffuse resources into these areas and, and clean out the waste from these spots? And so there's, it's in, you know, that, that's, that's one thing. And then uh, the other thing that you mentioned in your paper 
is that each of these evolutionary transitions apparently coincided with major increases in the concentration of oxygen in the atmosphere and oceans. And when, when I was talking to Olivia Judson about her work on major energetic transitions in life, there was this question that she was holding that I feel like you just answered, which is why endosymbiosis, like why bacteria drawing other bacteria inside themselves. And because there are all of these other instances where there's deep and intimate symbiosis, but not where one organism has actually literally become a component inside the other. And it seems as though the oxygen as a metabolic byproduct has sort of uh, created this. And then now there's, there's also, you know, the, the t talk about how it may have been uh, diffused oxygen that prepared the world or enabled the Cambrian explosion and that, that radical diversification. So I don't know where I'm going with that, but it's just like there's, there's lots of cool stuff that branches off of this understanding. Yeah, and I think this is why this is such a core idea in complexity that, you know, it's most obvious when you think about a circulatory network that it's solving this problem that once you've created this complex system, it's full of lots of parts. It is somewhat loosely, you know, to some extent, it's tightly or loosely bound, depending on the system. But once you've got this collection of of things that have to work together in some way, you need to allocate some infrastructure to allow that to happen. So in the slums, right, that's the that's sort of Luis's point is that there's no space for the infrastructure. And that infrastructure is really key. There's 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 resources you have to move in and waste you have to move out. And that is, you know, a feature of any complex system. Um, evolved, engineered, it doesn't matter, right? Uh, you've got a you've got heat byproducts and waste byproducts, and you've got to have networks to move them out. And um, the circulatory system, um, the branching patterns that we see in computer chips, the the branching of trees, those are all examples of sort of how resources can be moved through space. And so um, I think this is, yeah, this is you raised this point about the, you know, volumes and space being so important here, um, because in all of these biological and engineered systems, there really are physical things that have to move through space, and a network that makes that efficient um, becomes, you know, sort of an evolutionary imperative. So my question for you is, you know, I, I look at this and I think a lot about what comes after. And and both in this piece and the the next piece I want to I want to discuss with you about that you wrote about a scaling work, in in both you you kind of cast a glance forward into the next crisis and its re resolution or like arguably a, a recent crisis um, because maybe we've already hit some metabolic limit as individual organisms and that's where sociality has come from and like that civilization itself is a response to this and so i can't help but think about the way that you talk about how this curve goes from superlinear to linear to sublinear as you reach out into these larger visible organisms and then draw a, a dotted line between that and uh, reports that we waste 40% of the food that we generate in, in, in society. And, and uh, you know, wondering about, this is perhaps an insanely broad uh, analogical leap. That's my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> but the question is, you know, t to what extent are 
the inefficiencies that we see in uh, energy use and production and resource distribution in society, uh, evidence of some sort of sublinear metabolic scaling and kind of inescapable, you know? Good. Okay. So ultimately sort of my interest in this area was driven by two things. One, I told you that I was fascinated by ants and the other is like many people, I'm, I'm a little concerned about what we're doing to our world. Right. And we are part of this enormous metabolic system where we're extracting largely fossil fuels out of the ground, moving them across these networks and, raising the temperature of our planet among, among other crises we're, we're creating. That maybe that big crisis is a lot to take on with, with scaling theory. Um, so my work <laughs> said, let's put that aside for a little while um, and, and understand the scaling properties of, of social animals. And so that's part of what motivated trying to understand the scaling of ant colonies. And so that is kind of this, this next evolutionary transition is going from you know, bacteria and unicells and uh, plants and animals than to use social creatures, um, ant colonies being um, one of the best examples of creatures that have uh, organisms that really are best understood as collective organisms. And actually, when we wrote this paper, there was very little data on the scaling properties of ant colonies. And since then, there have been uh, quite a few papers that have come out. And so in this paper, we kind of speculated, you know, we're talking about this one sorry, in, yeah. the, in the original. I'm oh, sorry. Okay. In the uh, in the paper on um, the evolutionary transitions, PNAS, the yeah, PNAS okay. paper. Okay. Right. Yeah. So one of the evolutionary transitions in which there's some debate about whether this counts, but most people consider sociality as an evolutionary transition. And so the the question there is, well, why do you see that transition? You know, is there an energetic explanation for it? And you know, if you consider a colony, a large colony of ants, which might have, you know, 20 million ants in the colony, it has this great advantage that it doesn't have to internally sort of house its networks. So you can actually have, you know, networks that are built of the agents themselves, these ants that are forming paths in the rainforest or out here in the desert. And they don't really have to pay the full cost of sort of maintaining that. They don't maintain all the tissue around that, um, that network. And yet they use the network to bring in resources and take out waste. And so it's a nice sort of new technological answer to the fact that networks are essentially less and less efficient as they get larger because they've just, you've got to build a whole, so an elephant, for example, has to build a really big network, <laughs> right? Um, one of my, you know, we, I always imagine this, you know, if the elephant re could be as fast as a mouse, it would need an enormous circulatory system. So I sort of imagine this elephant walking around with a giant network on its back, right? <laughs> that is the thing that would pump enough oxygen to its cells so an elephant's cells could run as fast as a mouse's cells. So it's sort of this impossibility, like the network would have to be larger than the elephant itself. And so sociality is an answer to that question. You can have a network that's external to the bodies that are being maintained and have all these energetic requirements if you are much more loosely coupled. And so that's one of the sort of things that you know we think ant colonies are doing. So in this paper, we speculated that maybe when we look at sociology, sociality, we might see a different scaling exponent in, say, the metabolic rate of an ant colony versus its size. We might see a different slope than we do for um, individual animals. Um, and maybe there's this trend, this exponent, we've gone from super linear to linear to this three-quarter power. Maybe we should see something slightly smaller, an exponent that you can make bigger colonies, but it gets sort of harder and harder to make a bigger one. 
interestingly, the data suggests that the exponent is almost the same, really close to this three-quarter. So we, you know, you put big colonies into a, a metabolic chamber versus small colonies, and the metabolism of the whole colony is going up at about this three-quarter scaling again, maybe slightly steeper. So does that mean that given the amount of available oxygen in the atmosphere, that the biggest ant colonies have a comparable biomass to the largest elephants or, or whales or like where, like right, where, it, where do they fit in this? Yeah, so, yeah. well, okay. One way to look at this is the biomass of ants is about the same as the biomass of the biomass of humans. So the, the two most sort of ecologically successful <laughs> groups on the planet are social so that that's not quite, that's not quite the question you had. You asked, I don't know what the mass of the largest ant colony is. I would imagine it's considerably smaller than the mass of an elephant, but I'm not it depends on what you count, right? Yeah. Because they have a lot of external, you know, their nest is extremely large and heavy. In fact, there's an image of uh, grass cutters that I frequently like to use, grass cutters in Argentina. So these are colonies of millions of ants. And when you look at the colony, actually, its mass must be greater than that of an elephant because there are people who have excavated this, um, this ant colony and there are multiple people walking around inside the cavity left from excavating this ant colony. So it's enormous. That's, <laughs> it's, or is that when they're pouring lead they're down? Pouring, yeah, yeah. They're, they're, they're making these casts of the, the network structure actually inside the colony. So it's a good question. I'll have to, <laughs> I'll have to look up what is the actual mass of that sort of a, that col those largest colonies. Well, I mean, it just gets animal. to these, these questions about like the 1950s monster movie trope of the giant insect and like why we right. don't have dragonflies with a six foot wingspan anymore. Yeah. Like why the blob isn't a thing, right? right? Like yeah. we have no reason to fear the blob and it feels like our science fiction has uh, grown up and matured into okay now we now we fear swarms right because <laughs> we maybe should fear the swarms yeah that's it's like it's right. a little easier to suspend your disbelief right and certainly you could never have an ant right that was the size and power of an entire 20 million ant colony right its body design is not designed to support anything near that size so it certainly is you know showing how you can escape that constraint that way i mean for what it's worth i do appreciate uh, how when when they blow up ant-man in the avenger films <laughs> to like you know the size of an elephant that his movement is comparably slower, slower. Yeah, yeah i the, appreciated that too Maybe although i would imagine he would just sort of like, does yeah, his vasculature a, scale? No, he would have oh. a diffusion problem, right? The, yeah. the insect tracheal system is not designed to scale to that size for sure. <laughs> so a few, yeah, a few liberties there. But to, maybe to, so to take this back to yeah. the, kind of the original question. So the in ant colonies, we can see these networks and we can see sort of the advantages and even show that, at least in theory, the advantages are mathematically describable. You know, what's the fractal branching network for foraging and retrieving resources. There was a great paper by, by June et al., uh, gosh, 15 years ago now, that really looked at that question that you can think of the, the, the colony's cardiovascular network is the foraging trail, right? And then we see, you know, the, meta, the metabolism of these colonies following this similar three-quarter power scaling relationship. So, and we don't really understand why. There's all kinds of um, interesting hypotheses. One of them, actually, one of the best ones is the lazy ant hypothesis, which is that the way the colony can uh, sort of stays on this three-quarter scaling line is the bigger it gets, the more lazy ants there are that are just sitting around doing nothing. Um, so there's these measurements that show large colonies have lots of workers that are low metabolism because they're just sitting around doing nothing. Whether there's an analogy to 
your question about inefficiency in human populations. I'm, I'm not sure. Do we have more, more people sitting around and doing nothing? It almost feels like the opposite, right? The more sort of energetically connected our society is, the more, you know, sort of generates more and more activity. Then again, you know, so much of the work now, so much of the activity, at least at the level of an individual human being, is like I'm sitting here at my desk rather than I'm out throwing spears at large animals. Right. And just the very fact that we're even having a universal basic income discussion in this presidential election cycle is, I think, evidential of something, something about the uh, – the decoupling of the world that we're used to and like moving into a cohesive planet scale framework right. economically. Right. Yeah. So there, I mean, part of the, you know, part of the lesson from the ant colonies is that these ants, which are viable organisms that can move around and, you know, in, as independent animals, um, they can't survive without being tapped into the the system that, of their colony that feeds them. In fact, there's a lot of evolutionary mechanisms that keep ants from just like eating food when they're out in the world. They have to have it processed by the colony. So they're very tied to this infrastructure. So that changes their behavior, right? Maybe it makes some of them lazy. It changes all sorts of things about how they interact with each other. And I think really a fundamental sort of societal question is how does being part of this vast economic system, you know, that you and I and everybody else are part of, how does that change our behavior? Have we sort of become ants in the colony? You know, this is sort of the Borg idea that we've had to change things about our own life history in order to be participating in this huge um, energetic system that delivers us our food and our gas for our cars. And um, so the uh, the first paper I actually wrote was with Jim Brown. It was kind of a, in some ways, an analogy that I think doesn't directly hold, but this was um, a paper that showed that as societies become more consumptive, birth rates fall. So the demographic transition is a well-understood or well-documented phenomenon, not well-understood. Um, the argument there is that as you become more energetically consumptive, the system essentially has to have all of its components slow down, just like the cells of an elephant slow down. People in a more consumptive society sort of have to slow down their reproductive rate. I mean, if you could imagine if we were still having the, you know, eight to 12 children each that are biologically possible, right? We've got all these resources in the United States. Can imagine like how quickly we would have destroyed the planet if we <laughs> continued a growth trajectory like that, right? It's impossible. And so if we're going to continue to you know, build these large energetic systems and per capita increase our consumption, something has to slow down. And one of, you know, what's astonishing is that, you know, the most sort of important biological imperative is reproduction, right? And we all just voluntarily limit that dramatically when we're in large consumptive societies. And um, maybe we change a lot of our other behaviors, right, in order to make the whole, allow the whole system to work. Yeah, in a way, it's kind of a, a hopeful portrait that you're painting here that, you know, that we may, as we approach what we're thinking of as overpopulation, that we adjust, you know, and that it's more of a, a sigmoidal it's, curve than it is right. this, you know. So it's more optimistic than the continued exponential, super exponential growth <laughs> of our population and our energy consumption. It's It's more optimistic than that. It's not terribly optimistic, right? So if you sort of, <laughs> if you do the math and you look at the rate at which we've slowed population growth and how much energy we consume individually to slow that growth, right? The, the equilibrium point is many, 
you know, billions more people, each of which, which are vastly more energetically consumptive. So if we continued on the, con the current trends, right, I mean, our, our, our energetic consumption would be, many, would be orders of magnitude greater than it is now as a, as a planet. And that is clearly not viable, right? Um, we, we can't do that. <laughs> and so it's not clear, right, there's not some nice asymptotic continuing of the trends that we, we can't stay on the trend that we're on. Certainly. But I mean, we're talking about the membrane of the planet, right? And the membrane of the carrying capacity of the, right. you know, yeah. so there's like this, yeah. there's the question of if we're going to look at the bacterial transition into eukaryotic cells for advice, <laughs> then maybe it's like underground cities, you know, there's, we got to add that third dimension, you know, yeah, create, right. create more membrane surface. It's an it's a it's an interesting we orbital need colonies. More, right? We need ways to pump more of the CO two out of right out of the Earth's membrane than we currently have. We don't have any way to get it out, right? Of course, it's a it's not quite the right analogy. This is a system where it's only a problem, right? Because this was all locked up and we've discovered it and and we pump it back out. But it, it does point to one other interesting piece of this, is which is that you know we're sort of for all of these other transitions, there's been some outside right, that you can incorporate, right? Multiple cells get together and now they've created some new larger thing. Colonies are great examples of this, right? There's now they've sort of incorporated part of the environment into the colony. Um, certainly humans have done that. Um, once we're at a planetary scale, like outside is not, it's, it's hard to kind of conceive about what that is. I mean, you get into science fiction ideas of, you know, colonizing other planets, which no. energetically is also probably not terribly viable. <laughs> so, you know, it really, it's a, it's a really hard boundary, right? To, to, it's a it's a different kind of boundary to think about crossing. The fact that we're doing all of this on a planetary scale, I think really, I don't think we have any answers. Scaling theory gives us some ways to think about it, maybe. Yeah. Well, I want to skip ahead now to a paper that you lead authored in uh, Philosophical Transactions B, Energy and Time Determine Scaling in Biological and Computer Designs. Because up to this point in this conversation, we've been talking about scaling out from the, the meso to the macro, sort of, uh, or from the micro to the meso. I want to talk about how you have paired computer architecture here with you know the biological anatomy and how you're looking at uh, you talk about how you know chip design you know chips really haven't grown all that much individually each chip has the, it's kind of the same surface it had 40 years ago the change has been small enough that you and your co-authors just assume it's constant in right. this paper a bit but, of a bold assumption but yeah, yeah but <laughs> but you know for the sake of simplicity it makes sense whereas you know what you're looking at is an increasing vasculature, quote unquote, into the micro scale, you know, a, a finer and finer carving up of that surface area. And, uh, and just talk about what the differences are in those two systems. And, and like, it's, it's very easy to draw analogies. But what did you and your your co authors observe as really departures from the way that this is handled by machines versus the way that this is handled by biological systems. Great. So I think the, the difference is probably um, the way this is handled by information systems versus the way that it's handled by energetic systems. Yeah, not, um, not machines, machines, yes, per se. Computer chips. So we started by trying to understand whether this scaling theory that talked about moving things through networks also applied 
to computer chips, how it, how it might be the same and different. It, maybe it's helpful to start with one of the big, the obvious sim similarities that we kind of came across was that computer chips have a fractal branching network, or some computer chips, or some iterations of uh, chips over a few decades, had fractal branching networks that followed precisely the West et al. fractal branching geometry. So if you know you took the equations used to, that were really sort of simplifications and idealized equations to describe a circulatory network, they really describe in two dimensions the network called an H-tree that connected components of a computer chip. And it's, it was the thing that allowed fast synchrony on a computer chip. So this H-tree would deliver a timing signal through this branching network. The signal would get everywhere at the same time. But it ran into exactly the, the scaling problem, which is to grow that network to a larger and larger size, you both have to make sort of the main arteries longer, and you also have to make them thicker. And so suddenly the, the chip is all network. Like it's, it's just a network to deliver timing signals. You don't have room to do any you know, computation. So, so that's problematic. Bureaucracy. Bureaucracy, yes. yeah. So that's exactly um, all of the, you know, networks are not these transportation networks. Are, it's just infrastructure to move stuff around. All the action happens out in the, kind of out in the leaves. Um, and so this bureaucracy becomes hugely burdensome. Interestingly, you can, one of the differences is that um, computer chips are largely 2D. Right, it's a flat surface, and all of the transistors are on one two-dimensional plane. Um, the way that engineers came up with, to deal with the fact that they needed more network as they put more transistors on the chip is they built up extra layers. So they may. So now I don't know we're up to ten or thirteen layers just designed to hold all the wires essentially that are connecting the components. So when I talked about the elephant walking around with a network on its back, that's exactly what computer chips do. They they actually. Because they're already they're in 2D, they have another dimension, right? They can actually carry a you know a network on their back, so they don't really have to internalize sort of the cost of networks the way that a three dimensional animal has to internalize that. So that's one difference. But maybe the more interesting difference is that um, that in right we all kind of know in computing technology things are getting transistors are getting smaller and smaller. They've been getting Moore's loss talks about the way that they've been getting systematically smaller over time. And that means you can have things that are not spatially separated, but you can have more of them. And so, again, that changes the geometry of these networks so that computer chips basically can get fat bigger and bigger on this, um, the power that you can process, the information that you can process on a chip can be linearly related to its size. It doesn't have these diminishing returns of this kind of three-quarter scaling relationship that we see in plants and animals. So sort of the elephant-sized computer chip Basically, all the components run as fast as they do on a mouse. And that's kind of part of the explanation for this tremendous increase in computing power that we have. You don't, there's a cost. You don't have to pay if you're moving bits around um, on a chip that you do have to pay if you're moving oxygen molecules around in an animal. So this is an interesting opportunity to look at the continuity of energy processing on the surface of this planet. And, like, you know, where do you stand uh, just to take a step back into this, this quasi-philosophical, you know, there there are people like uh, technologist Kevin Kelly who who try to articulate the uh, the internet and all of our our technological creation as continuous, you know, that that want to draw Moore's law back into the prehistoric and say that we're looking at this one process and that 
that you know the the industrial revolutions and the the liberation of available energy from you know the the fossil fuel revolution and so on are like what we were talking about earlier in terms of the uh, the great oxidation event mm-hmm. and that these are that we're really we're living through one of these these punctuations and that we can look at the built world mm-hmm. as a continuation of the process that we are it's not something separate in that regard um and i I'm, I'm curious you know obviously you know the metazoan arrival the evolution of complex animals created new opportunities, but also new challenges for uh, simpler forms of life. And I, I wonder if you think that's a fair analogy and what we're looking forward to in that case. Yeah. So, I mean, yes and no, right? So the, um, I think we're part of a group right now, it's writing up something on, on essentially whether computing technology is engineered or evolved. And I think you can ask that question about any technology and our, our, you know, our energetic system that's, you know, oil pipelines and ships and airplanes and all those things, are they engineered or are they evolved? And in some sense, clearly they're engineered, right? We have specifications and you can, you can, you can look at an airplane and it's pretty clearly not evolved. At the right? human scale. At the human scale. But then you look at these systems, the way we put things together, and it's very much trial and error and things that don't work and don't integrate with the rest of the system or are left behind. And so there's a lot of the process that's generating this technology, I think, is very similar to evolution in, in important ways. Um, your question is maybe, is, it, is there still something fundamentally different about technology and things we've built? Or is it simply we... a matter of scale, right? Because like, especially yeah. like I was watching the old Nova documentary on the, the X planes, you know, like the uh, Lockheed versus Boeing coming right, up right. with the next fighter. And at that point, which now by now is years ago, we were designing our fighter planes with computer assistance. Like you just said, you know, everything we were doing was uh, applying a kind of an evolutionary algorithm Mm -hmm. to designing the components of something. So the process itself was complex, even if the result was merely complicated. Right. Right. You know? So, yeah. Yeah. No, I think that it's an important point. I think there's two. uh, So I think the idea that there were sort of just this continuation of this, this previous trend is it's true in one sense, but I do also think it's a, there are some fundamental differences and maybe a you know one way when we look back at trends we look at things like moore's law there is a sense in which it is very optimistic it is a it is a particular case like there are very few other (laughs) things where things have just gotten you know doubled in power every couple of years luckily solar panels seem to be um you know photovoltaic efficiency and cost and those things seem to be following a more like trend so that's i think the one tiny bit of hope i see for our (laughs) our energetic future um that that i will i I wrote a paper that pointed to that and a lot of people said you know what that's not going to solve the problem we're not going to have a solar powered society it's not going to solve the problem but it's a little piece of optimism that some technologies follow this kind of more like trend uh, you can look back at vacuum tubes back you know hundreds of years and you see more like trends but the vast majority of our technological innovations are actually pretty slow um, and there are these moments where we you know we just we figured out how to get oil out of the ground and that created a huge shift but the efficiency with which we've gotten oil out of the ground hasn't followed any kind of more, more like process. Mm-hmm. It's extremely rare. And understanding, uh, don't, don't Farmer does some work trying to understand when you get this kind of more like efficiency and when you don't. It seems, it seems like figuring out how to get more of that is a really important thing for us to, to do right now. So there are particular technologies that seem to 
really rapidly take off. And I think some of those don't really look like evolutionary processes. And there is these sort of punctuated moments in time where we discover how to leverage some resource that we didn't know how to use before. And so we get a, a big increase in something because of that. That's different in scale, but similar in process, maybe to these these other evolutionary transitions. To kind of depart from this particular conversation, one of the things that I admire about this paper, this I think it's the 2016 paper, is how you bring time back into the conversation of scaling. And I, I'd like to speak to that because, you know, uh, you, you draw a lot on, you know, West et al. Mm -hmm. And the way that they've looked at uh, the actual physical structure. But you and your co-authors make a good point, which is that there are flows going through these systems and that it's not just about whether the branching <laughs> vasculature in your body minimizes the the waste heat and the, like the waste uh, diffused oxygen through that that membrane but also that it's really trying to get nutrients to the you know into the capillaries as quickly as possible and that as these different sections of the vasculature uh, get smaller the diameter gets smaller and the flow rate has to change and so that this this answers some questions about what we were seeing, like the departures we were seeing from that that clean, sublinear mammal scaling curve. And I'd love to hear Great. you say more about that. Uh, yeah. So in this um, paper, we really did try to take two different sort of hypotheses, I guess, about how how it is that these fractal branching networks, what they're what they're minimizing. And right, the West et al. as you said, the West et al. Et al model really said that it's about minimizing energy dissipation, energy waste, essentially, the rate. And uh, another argument that it's about maximizing the rate of flow or minimizing time. And so in this paper, we argued that organisms should be doing both, right? Uh, so if you're maximizing your reproductive rate, um, you need energy to provide to the next generation and you need to do it quickly. If someone else could do it faster, right, you're going to lose the, the evolutionary race. Um, and so when we sort of married those two things, we put both of those constraints into the model of minimizing energy and time. And we assumed that they were equally important based on no knowledge of how we would make any other assumptions. So that is <laughs> an interesting, I think, area of uh, an interesting question. Are there places where minimizing energy or minimizing time is more or less important? We said to first brush, we'll assume they're equally important. And yeah, what that did was set up um, sort of a slightly different optimization that leads to almost three-quarter power scaling, but some systematic deviations from three-quarter power scaling, which, which actually match um, what's been observed in the, in the data. Um, there's this curvature, slight curvature in the scaling Scaling relationships, a uh, great pa paper by Colocotrones and Savage pointed that out. Um, and that scaling, the original scaling model predicts some curvature, but in the wrong direction. And this model actually predicts curvature in the correct direction. Um, and it wasn't set up to do that. It, it was set up to model computer chips. <laughs> so you're talking about specifically that the metabolisms of the very smallest and the very largest, largest mammals, mammals don't fit the curve, the curve right? Yeah. And that has, um, you know, they're very slight deviations. But interestingly, one of the... Um, results, if that's in fact the empirical truth, the scaling exponent you get depends on where you measure on the line because it's not quite a line. And so taking this, this line through different data sets will get you slightly different scaling exponents. And so I think 
that if in fact there's a little bit of curvature, that helps to explain why when people fit lines, they get different numbers. So it's, it's got sort of practical importance in how we understand these things as well, to be able to come up with a theoretical explanation that, that accounts for the curvature. There is, in the discussion of this paper, when you go into, again, more detail on the evolutionary transitions, you compare the transition to sociality we just discussed with this movement to decentralized architecture and computer networks. And I can't help but think, you know, you talk about, uh, although I don't think you say it by name, the Internet of Things and, and the way that we seem to be observing a a transition into, and again, you're just swarm roboticists. So it's like this this movement into. Uh, I like uh, Ricard Soleil's description of solid brains and liquid brains, right. and how like an ant hive or a human city is a sort of a liquid brain, and that uh, it looks like our computer architectures are starting to move in this direction out of the like the block that sits in front of you and into this this flowing thing. Mm -hmm. Yes. You've, the, a key question is a question of centralization, like um, that a key constraint clearly in these multicellular plants and animals, the, the network is centralized, right? There's this big bureaucratic aorta, right? That everything has to <laughs> flow through. And that's a problem, right? It kind of, it causes things to have to slow down. And, and so you can get around that constraint by, for example, becoming a social organism that doesn't have quite the same centralized, right? It allows more decentralization. And basically that's, you know, by analogy, right? A, a thinner aorta. You can function with, with something without complete centralized flow. And we certainly see that in the design of computer chips. There's not a central place where every bit has to pass through this central location. And you know, we now have multi-core computer chips, um, Internet of Things, right? There is certainly this trend toward decentralization, but I think we need to be careful in saying that that is what leads to a scalable solution. Um, if you look at, for example, Bitcoin and these these kind of their whole setup is uh, trying to avoid centralization, and they're horribly not scalable, right? This is this is why we're pumping so much CO two into into computers in China that are that are processing that are that are right doing doing these mathematical operations in order to verify things without centralization. So centralization, it's really, I think, about a balance and an understanding about what needs to be centralized and what should be decentralized in order to have a scalable system. Um, if uh, So in the swarm robotics domain, um, our most recent uh, work in that domain is we're trying to build a scalable swarm of robots. So these are robots that might, you know, search for resources on the surface of Mars. Um, and we want to imagine sending, you know, thousands and thousands of robots to, to search, you know, a really large area. And what you soon run into is no matter how clever you are with your algorithms for how the robots search for things, their problem becomes all transport. Like if you're going to take stuff back to the, you know, the base where the humans are, all of the work becomes robots moving over long distances. And so we were actually able to use scaling theory to say, you know what, we could have independently searching robots that stay in their areas and build a fractal branching network of basically a series of lar increasingly larger dump trucks. Um, and they can take care of the transportation problem. And scaling theory tells us exactly how they can take care of this, the, the transportation problem. So the robots, you know, out in, out in the hinterlands can keep doing their things as fast as, as needed. There's always a depot or a little dump truck for them to put their stuff in. Um, and connected to this centralized network. So there it's really the balance of how do you keep independent units sort of 
operating as independently as possible, but connected to a larger system that's taking care of the sort of the coordination and transportation piece. So that seems to be the the real meta lesson here. You know, if we pull back just a little and and ask the unasked question of why these major evolutionary transitions, these metabolic innovations didn't just replace what came before, right? It's like, I, I, to speak to the Bitcoin thing in particular, you know, I remember in 2017, so many people were convinced that decentralized money systems were just going to replace centralized money systems and the decentralized systems of governance were just going to radically outcompete. It was a, it was, I think a, a misfit, uh, mammals scurrying under dinosaurs kind of a story. Right. And yet mammals and dinosaurs lived together rather harmoniously for like 150 million years. Right. So why was that the case? Like that, that story doesn't really work. And, and, you know, it, it sounds to me in this paper, like you're, you're pointing to robotic ecosystem in which we have uh, the, the, the real answer is to, to take a look at this from the ecosystem level and look at how these things are occurring, not just within an organism or within a, you know, an, an ant like super organism, but within the entire rainforest and how those systems all fit together. And that there's that like the, the different sizes of organisms are themselves representative of a kind of um, like modular and mobile vasculature. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a question we don't know the answer to sort of, you know, what is, is there an equivalent of sort of the, the metabolic network in an ecosystem? So if you, you know, if you, if you just think about an animal, you can sort of think about, you know, just like our little robots that are doing their thing and get to work in parallel and in complete ignorance of the rest of them. Each of your cells in some sense is doing that, right? It's doing its own thing. It doesn't need to get a set, you know, a signal from your brain in order to do its work. It's sort of always doing its work, and every now and then it gets a signal that tells it to do something different, but it's that the marrying of this centralized thing that keeps them all sort of under control, but also independently doing their own thing, right? And the same with ants in a colony, right? They're independently going out, doing they've all, their individual brains, but they're still connected with this system. Whether, you know, the system that connects a bunch of different, you know, a collection of different animals in a rainforest is a little bit different. It seems much less centralized, right? There is, in some sense, ener there is energy flow, obviously, through that system, but there's not, it's not cohesive in the same sense, I think, as a, as an, a social animal is. And maybe that is part of what allows this coexistence at very, you know, very many different niches. It's a good, it's a good question whether, you know, whether the difference between an ecosystem and an, and an, uh, social animal really could be understood as a difference in sort of how much centralized control there is. There's differentiation in both cases, but really far less in a, you know, something like a social insect colony than in a, in an ecosystem. Mm. So I, yeah, it's, I, I don't know if that's worth speculating on. <laughs> that's that I think, uh, again, to, to, with Luis, I think we got into this about, yeah, the, the organism ecosystem thing. Does it analogize to, uh, companies in a city? That there seems like, you know, companies have this rapid turnover, they die like organisms, and, and cities uh, persist in a different way that looks more like ecosystems. But right. anyway, I want to, uh, I, I, you know, we're, we're, you've given me an hour already. I want to make sure that we get to the NASA Swarmathon uh, <laughs> before we end this conversation, because here's a really uh, awesome project that you're the principal investigator for. And... 
I'd like to, yeah, I mean, you've been bringing uh, the Swarmathon out to Interplanetary Festival, and it's really exciting, uh, and I don't want to talk for you. Okay. So let's just, yeah. So I'll be, yeah, so the Swarmathon is a, a project we ran for the last, uh, we ran it four years. And uh, the idea was that we wanted to build swarms of robots to revolutionize space exploration. And we also wanted to do this as a, as a way to engage particularly minority, underrepresented minority students in a really exciting research project. Um, and I think it was really successful. Our last official competition uh, was last year, although we have sort of some spinoff things happening. I think it was a it was it was super fun, first of all. Like, we really got to build. We built about 100 robots total. Um, so these are, you know, I don't know, sort of a foot and a half square per cubed robots. Um, we were able to design those. We sent kits out to students. We had uh, about 45 teams total who participated in this. Over the four years, we had about 1,500 students involved in building these robots, designing algorithms to have these robots go out and forage like ants. They had to find little cubes that we scattered around in arenas, eventually hiding them behind vaguely Martian-looking rocks. And, <laughs> um, and the idea was one that students would learn about robotics, particularly autonomous robots, right? So everything had to be, you know, this, the idea was that students would upload their code to us. We would pretend we were on Mars with their, with their robots, and they didn't get to change it. Um, and they would have to run through days of, of different um, competition rounds. And um, so in the rounds, we would, we would actually change the distribution of how these cubes were out in the world so that the students had to develop algorithms that were not just autonomous, but also flexible. So they would work well given sort of different kinds of worlds. And um, yes, yeah, so we all had a fantastic time. It was really exciting to basically crowdsource this question of how should you forage, how should you search for resources in a big space using a, a swarm of robots. And there was no answer to that question before. We got over the years, you know, about 50 different answers to that question. It actually did lead us to some theoretical work that we recently published that, that showed um, of the best algorithms that won this competition, we could demonstrate theoretically um, which which is which was the most efficient way to search the space in theory, um, and we could show empirically that theory is often not the right metric to use <laughs> when you have robots, really particularly cheap robots built from cheap components, <laughs> running around in a parking lot with variable wind and light and all kinds of other conditions. And so it was um, weirdly we're able to kind of engage these students. They had a great time. Lots of them have gone on to get master's degrees and do internships at NASA. So successful in that regard, but they really did contribute to kind of advancing, you know, the, the, the cutting edge of research and this question of how should you search a large space. So, I, you know, some of your more recent publications have been on, uh, like you had this one out this year, distributed adaptive search in T cells, lessons from ants. Did the Swarmathon stuff make it into that? A little bit. So our yeah, the idea that we've really been pursuing here is that um, that. Search in theory is often different from search in practice. And so we were really interested. Uh, T cells are essentially searching for, you know, viruses, pathogens in your body. Um, it's a pretty messy system. They're autonomous agents, so we can think of them just like ants in a colony or robots in a swarm. They're going off. They're searching. They communicate with each other in some cases. Um, they ha Their movement patterns are really important for how quickly they, they discover things. And... But in all three of these cases, the ants and the T cells and the robots, noise and error and sort of structural constraints 
really change what's the right way to search a space. And um, so, yeah, we were actually able to sort of draw some lessons. Um, maybe one of the best ones was um, early on when we were first developing, our, our first robots were called iAnts. Um, it was an iPod on a robotic platform. <laughs> and um, they were really cute. They weren't like super functional, but they were, <laughs> they were fun to work with. Um, we, we wanted an analogy to ant pheromones, right? So we knew that Right. Everybody knows you put the food down in the picnic basket and a trail of ants comes because they're communicating chemically the location. So we didn't have any chemical communication among our robots. Um, we tried. We failed to have any kind of <laughs> chemical communication among our robots. So we just used waypoints. We just used abstract notions of where something was in space and the robots would communicate it. If they found something in a good place, the other robots could come there. It turned out this was a horrible failure. And the reason was that when you communicate an abstract location if you're lost then you just mislead all of the other robots right? mm. they go to the wrong spot so it really drove home the importance of embodied communication which both t-cells and ants have right they actually lay a chemical trail they can't lay the trail where they are not right it is by definition in the place where they are so that trail you know they might make a mistake in deciding this is a good place but they at least are putting the signal in the right place and anyone who's following a gradient will get to that same place so it, it drove us to really look at what are the mechanisms that are sort of robust to the error that individual cells or, or ants are going to make in their search process. I guess my last question for you would be, how has this research into search changed the way that you search? <laughs> like, how, how, has it, how has it changed okay. the way that you handle uh, the, the way you design for error robustness in your own right. so, life. So that you, I'll turn the question around. I study search processes because I'm very, very bad at finding things. I can't ever <laughs> find my keys. I can't find the piece of paper where I wrote down the important thing. I, yeah, finding things is not a skill I have. So I was hoping that to, to design systems that could do that for me. Um, yeah, the main thing is I'll do a little advertisement for tile, you know, the little the little tiles that you can attach to your mm -hmm. keys, right? Because now I have a sound. It's almost like a pheromone that tells me where my important things are. And I'm, I'm now completely reliant on that. And I've given up on sort of the usual random search process that I would use to find my keys. So you're <laughs> becoming more of a liquid brain. I'm becoming, yeah. <laughs> Maybe in, in many bad ways, I'm becoming more of a liquid brain. I've, I've also outsourced a lot of my brain to various computer systems. And, and yeah, that's just one example. With the elephant with the huge backpack and you're like vastly less productive now. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> I don't have to carry it around with me. It's out in the cloud. So that's maybe a help. Awesome. Melanie, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening. Complexity is produced by the Santa Fe Institute, a nonprofit hub for complex system science located in the high desert of New Mexico. For more information, including transcripts, research links, and educational resources, or to support our science and communication efforts, visit santafe.edu slash podcast.